On this podcast, it's not the beginner's corner. It's the most difficult elephant in the room, long-term care. I discuss you know, the cost as well as the different ways that people can try to plan to pay for it. And in addition to that, we'll have a couple updates about new headlines that have crossed my desk here over the past week. Let's get started. Welcome to the Maximizer Medicare podcast. My name is J.O. I'm the author of Maximizer Medicare and your host. Please be sure to check out the website for the book, www.maximizermedicare.com. I've put up the videos that are part of the YouTube channel, which pertain directly with Medicare. In addition to that, there are other selected podcasts. And finally, you can see other important official links, which might be important if you have questions about Medicare, for example, how to apply, how to get extra help, etc., all the official links are right there on the site, www.maximizeyourmedicare.com. You know, I always say this, and it's still important, which is you need to keep up to date. You know, today I'm going to be giving you a couple of new things that are, have come across my desk. This kind of thing happens frequently under Medicare, and out of the blue, there can be a change. You may not be aware of it. And then all of a sudden you become affected. So you'll need to keep up to date. The world's changing. That's just the fact of the matter. And 60 million people on Medicare means that there are stresses at all sorts of levels of all the huge stakeholders involved. First segment today is the updates. And the first one that came across was something regarding you know COVID-19 and Medicare fraud. Now, this should be self-evident, okay, and I'm going to be repeating the obvious to some of you, which is that, you know, with COVID-19, any extraordinary situation, whatever it might be, it invites wrongdoing. And, you know, COVID-19 not being an exception, especially trying to prey on those people who are the Medicare eligible. The bottom lines are the following. Nobody from the federal government will be asking you for your Medicare ID number. Okay. Now, that's less sensitive now, no question, because of the fact your Medicare ID number no longer contains your Social Security number. Nevertheless, never a good idea to share your Medicare ID number with another person. You know, I've actually seen situations where the person got enrolled in a Part D plan without actually realizing it after a discussion with an agent. This didn't really sit well with me you know, and without trying to say that there was, you know, blatant wrongdoing, the fact of the matter is that a person who could come to me didn't actually realize that they were enrolled in a Part D plan. The issue is that when you make your initial election, which is called IEP during that period when you first are become turn 65 and you make this selection, you don't actually have the ability to undo that selection unless you had a state-specific free look provision. So as a result, you know, it's pretty unseemly. So again, unless this is a, you know, to, you get a call from a person and they start asking you personal information and such as giving your, your Medicare ID number over the phone, you know, I probably shy away from it. 
And so the reality is, unless you are doing so intentionally, just don't share any of this stuff with anyone, please. Okay. The second one is a little bit uh, touchier and more sensitive, which is that beginning in 2021, there's going to be a short list, five conditions where you actually have to have a pre-authorization even from original Medicare. Now, I included the link of you know what those five conditions, and we're not going to talk about what those five are, actually. You can just go to the link as part of the pod. And what struck me is the following, is first, those people who are already on Medicare Advantage, you may have already encountered prior authorization, meaning that the carrier has put certain situations, stipulations, that you need to have prior authorization from the carrier in order to proceed with a particular type of therapy or service you re- you receive if you suffer from a particular type of medical condition. This is not really a big change to Medicare Advantage policy holders. You will know if you are a Medicare Advantage policy holder, this is entirely possible. The big change, however, is the fact that this didn't used to occur under original Medicare, meaning that if you have Part A and Part B and Part D alone, then this didn't really exist. Further, of course, if you have had or if you have a Medigap policy, again, you wouldn't have experienced this. This will change in 2021. So again, the list of the five situations is there on the link here in the podcast. And so you'll just want to check. I can't predict the future. I don't know if this is going to be a growing trend within original Medicare. My misgivings here, candidly speaking, is not whether or not this is medically appropriate, but my question is really about the timeliness of the administration of getting the authorization. So let's say you need to have this kind of therapy or service within you know two to three days. Are you really practically going to get your pre-authorization from the CMS in a timely way? <laughs> I don't know, which is kind of my w- nice way of saying I'm pretty sure there's going to be a snafu somewhere just by the nature of the fact that there can be red tape. Now, last point here. This does not mean that your Medigap carrier is, you know, denying your service. In other words, Medigap carriers rely entirely, entirely on the first action which must come from the CMS or Medicare, meaning, and those two being the same thing, meaning that if Medicare approves, then Medigap is secondary and will cover you, period. However, If for whatever reason, Medicare doesn't approve, or if Medicare doesn't think that you've covered your Part B deductible, for example, in that instance, the carrier's hands, your Medigap carrier's hands are tied. They're tied, meaning that they're going to rely entirely on the data that exists that they get from the CMS. Once satisfied, then there are no questions. Medigap covers the balance. I call long-term care 
you know, the elephant in the room issue for everyone. Meaning that, you know, it's just the most unpleasant of topics, right? Nobody wants to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it with themselves, much less share it with their family members, whether it be your spouse or adults, children. You know, and, and you're just not alone because we don't have a national strategy for long-term care. We don't have a state strategy. I mean, we have, you know, part part and parcel pieces here and there, like the Medicaid partnership, long-term care insurance partnership that can exist at the state level. And your other options are just limited, meaning that, you know, Medicaid and Veterans Administration, those benefits exist, but you need to have a very limited amount of assets in order to, you know, qualify for those types of benefits and be in a nursing home and have, you know, the government pay for it. Lastly, you know, the fact of the matter is that many people say, well, I'm just going to self-insure out of my savings and assets. That has problems with it because of the sheer cost of it. And inside the pod or in the text below, inside here is I included a recently published survey of, you know, data from 2019. It came from Mutual of Omaha. Disclosure is I, you know, represent Mutual of Omaha long-term care insurance as well as Medicare insurance, Medigap plans. This survey gives a month-to-month, not to month-to-month, state-by-state breakdown for different tiers of, you know, accommodations as well as cost. And let me just summarize without, you know, repeating the statistics for all 50 states. You're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of $80,000 to $120,000 a year. That pretty much summarizes the, you know, cost that describe most of the states in the country. The fact of the matter is, is that your asset base, your retirement savings would have to be pretty high in order to cover a six-digit bill every year. To make long-term care a very complicated issue is the fact that you don't know how long you know this situation is going to last. It could certainly be the case if you had just a medical situation, Alzheimer's, for example, or if you suffered a stroke when you required help because you could not physically conduct your daily life, then the reality is you could be in that state for a very long time. Rather than dwelling on it, because you know these are facts that many people know, let's just say that the bottom line is that virtually every household in the United States is basically affected here. If this is the scenario, the very few who can actually pay for it out of their pocket without a problem, very few and far between. So let's continue on. Uh, you know, the, the fact is, is that if this were to happen, we need some way to offset, you know, that situation, meaning that we need some type of way to get a payment where if you required skilled nursing facility care on an ongoing basis, some increase to your household net worth or resources. The reality is, is that the only real way to do this is some insurance type contract, one whose 
payments or benefits that you would receive are contingent upon this situation. The idea that you are going to invest your way into this, right? Or if your advisor is saying, well, we're just going to invest it and that will cover it. That, that, that is just not the way this is going to work, to be candid with you. Basically, you're playing odds about whether or not, for example, you're going to go into a skilled nursing facility and pass away soon enough, which is an outcome that you're not trying to have. So, I mean, the idea that an advisor would be guaranteeing this type of thing, that you're not going to outlive your assets, this is one that the advisor has to stop short of making got to stop short of making and if you do get this guarantee or something that looks and feels like a guarantee i'm going to say pants on fire when i've advised people when people have asked me about what i thought about their own personal situation and covering the cost of potential long-term care you know catastrophic costs in the future i basically go through the, a set of questions and i'm going to share them here with you because, you know, the reality is, as you can tell from most of the other podcasts, please listen to them if you haven't, is the fact is that the same process that I would use in questioning a potential client who is looking into this is to do a couple of things. The first one, and by far the most important, is to correctly, accurately define what you're trying to accomplish. I can't overstate this because what ends up happening is people try to reach, you know, five different objectives with one single instrument. That generally doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because, you know, it's kind of like chop suey. You know, you want some elements of Chinese food, et cetera, et cetera, and then also pasta and this, that, and the other. Well, what ends up coming out as the result is you end up giving up the best characteristics of any particular ingredient. It really is quite, you know, that's a silly analogy. I get it, but that really is fitting, meaning that when you are trying to get an all-in-one financial contract to solve, you know, seven different objectives, your pricing, something is given up. And what ends up happening is the thing that you give up may be have been, you know, the most important thing. So basically I'm back to it works best if you correctly define what you are actually trying to accomplish. Then and only then, then we can deal with, okay, what does your budget allow? How much will you get if you use that budget and you allocate it, right? What ends up happening when you don't, when you do not correctly define it or define it in very vague terms is that at the end you look back with buyer's remorse and then you've got a problem and then of course you blame me so you know the fact of the matter is the contracts are going to do what they say as written from the onset that is certainly the case you know the carriers whoever they are the contract sellers these guys are going to follow the, the legal contract otherwise they're in a boatload of trouble so that's not the issue. The issue is that yourself and myself have got to make sure that there's a meeting of the mind so that you're articulating exactly what you're trying to do. 
Once you have done that, right, once you've gotten that articulation and once you have defined what resources you have to allocate to that particular objective, then we go to the market and we find out what prices exist. And you have to do those things in that order because what ends up happening is is if you skip steps, something gets missed. You go, okay, I'm only interested in the cheapest price because this is all the resources that I have actually no, because now you skip the step of, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? It can be that doing nothing is, you know, the appropriate outcome because with your money and with your, the amount of importance it has and the price, that combination may not be fitting. They may not converge to a practical solution. I'm okay with that. Look, I, you know, I sell gum over here. I'm a price taker. By that same token, I'm okay if the client says, look, I wanted to fill this objective. It wasn't that important to me. It's kind of a nice have, you know, nice to have. But at that price, it doesn't work given our financial resources. That's an entirely acceptable conclusion for me. It's not a good solution if oh, I thought I was going to do this and I really wanted to accomplish that and so I overspent given my resources and it didn't come to fruition and now, you know, I leave a bad taste in my mouth. I would feel like I'm misled either by Jay or the carrier. You know, that is just a negative outcome that you're trying to avoid. Let's move on. I've spent too much time on this particular topic, but it really is vital. I'm pretty sure that long-term care and the prospect of not being able to take care of yourself is pretty much one of the worst topics you could possibly imagine, right? Meaning that it you don't want to talk to yourself about it. You don't want to look yourself in the mirror and think about that outcome. So the idea of trying to say it out loud to a spouse, your children, extended family members, you know, it's just not a pleasant topic. And that's why I call it the elephant in the room. You know it's a topic, but... It's hard to talk about. It's hard to discuss. That is totally understandable. You know, you're not alone, right? We don't have a national strategy. We don't have a national strategy. We don't have a state-specific strategy. You know, we have remnants, elements of kind of strategies. Long-term care insurance state partnership is one, and you can ask me direct questions about it beyond the scope of today. We have other big programs where, which do work when they are deployed. Medicaid, Veterans Administration. You know, the issue there is that you need to have a limited number of resources, financial resources, in order to qualify for those types of benefits. Last point here about long-term care and, you know, the, the way that people plan for it is self-insurance generally doesn't work. And it generally doesn't work because we're going to now talk about the cost. And in this podcast, if you take a look, there's a link. I included the link to a study. It was done by Mutual of Omaha, I want to say, and it is about the cost in 2018. So it was released in 2019 or maybe even more recent than that. That's why I like the report. Basically, if you want to have a skilled, if you want to live in a skilled nursing facility, unit, care, anywhere in the country, you're talking about $100,000 a year. And assisted living, you know, less than that, but eh, 
you know, at $100,000 a year, I'm not sure if there's a big difference between $100,000 and $90,000 a year, right? In other words, for most Americans, this is a bankrupting number after a not a very long period. And this is the main thing here, which is that along with health cost, skilled nursing facility care or not being able to take care of yourself, the cost of that, you know, are the two biggest items that can create the fastest, deepest loss in household net worth. And the reason I tell you that the reason I tell you that self-insurance doesn't work is that almost irrespective of what assets you actually own, they can't increase at that rate that you will lose if you have to pay for long-term care out of your ass, out of your pocket. And anyone who tells you that they're going to be able to replicate it, et cetera, et cetera, you know, <laughs> I, I find that just very, very difficult to believe. Either they're taking, you're taking massively bigger risks than you think, or you're not really being told the full truth. Now, in addition to that, even if, let's just say, for example, you've been riding the equity markets for the last 10 years in a straight line until this year, right? Let's just say this has happened unabated. While that's the case, and now that we are here, you know, the fact of the matter is, if is you are also subject to something I call Murphy's Law, which many people know, that it's not necessarily that something goes wrong. It's that something goes wrong at the worst possible time. And when it comes to self-insurance, what does that mean? That means that the time that your asset values are lowest, real estate market, financial holdings in your 401k, IRA, Murphy's Law tells you that this stuff happens when you know the market is down. That's when you get the big bill. When you couple that with the absolute cost of long-term care, you get my conclusion, which is that self-insurance doesn't work. And that is kind of what the point of insurance actually is. It is not only that it's providing protection, but it's providing protection at the time that you need it, which shields you not only from that situation, but it shields you from having to sell other assets at exactly the wrong time. And in that way, it is a different type of security than or financial contract than, you know, your ownership in your, your 401k. It's just different, right? Because it doesn't react. The payout structure is not the same. The payout structure is not the same. And, you know, also part of this podcast is a video, right? The accompanying video for this podcast. And you can see I've actually set out to draw you the graphs. Graphs of insurance payouts are very different than graphs of diversified portfolios. Just their nature is fundamentally different. So the idea that you can hedge the downside of long-term care or uninsured health care cost with a portfolio of diversified assets, <laughs> you know, that that's literally an untruth. So on we go. 
And basically what goes on here is long-term care itself, traditional long-term care insurance, you know, it has a very checkered past. That's a fact. You, from the jump, there were errors in estimation. There were errors in the assumptions made by the carriers. And so when long-term care insurance first came out, then all the other insurance carriers, you know, followed suit. They plugged in and they wanted to play with their shiny new toy but basically three things happened. In addition to the first one being errors in estimation, no one canceled. And, you know, for people who don't understand how insurance companies work, when people cancel, they keep the premium. And so that gets lost for the buyer. Well, no one cancels once they're in on long-term care insurance. Second is once they claim, you know, due to the fact that people can stay in a facility for a very long period, you know, the amount of claims that someone gets is enormous. In other words, much more than just, you know, one or two months worth of uh, claims. Instead, you can have years of claims. So you, so what ends up happening is there's a maximum benefit amount that a lot of the people have ended up drawing and getting the maximum benefit. And then third is the fact that, you know, we've had this period of low interest rates and, you know, the 10-year note and right now less than 60 basis points, 0.6% a year. In other words, you know, insurance companies take the premium and they invest it in largely in the bond market. Well, the bond market doesn't yield enough. So there's no money on that end either. So you kind of got this trifecta of bad stuff that has happened to long-term care insurance or insurance companies. The bottom line is that, you know, you had all these people, you know, playing with the shiny new toy, finding, getting hit with this triple whammy and then receding away from the market. And you can see that, you know, in a practical sense, Genworth, which is, you know, one of the market leaders of long-term care insurance in the past, you know, it is basically, you know, the equity is not worth a lot. I want to call it, what, three, four dollars a share, something like that. It's been trying to sell itself to a Chinese insurance company for basically the better part of the last three years. It is notably better now, which is that, you know, the sellers have a much better handle of the math. There are fewer sellers. So as a result of, of these and the past, you know, the insurance companies have largely, you know, made up for the mistakes of the past, you know, to not repeat them in the future. Nevertheless, challenges persist on long-term care insurance. First of all, underwriting. The carriers do have the right to reject your claims, or not your claims, I'm sorry. They have the right to reject your application. I can't imagine that that's getting easier under COVID-19. In addition to that, you know, the language inside of long-term care insurance is complicated, and it's non-standardized, meaning that other than the thing of, you know, activities of daily living, ADLs, is what it's called. You know, there's a bunch of different, you know, dip switches, I would basically call the analogy, right, where you've got all these different terms, elimination period, inflation protection, uh, you know, right to buy up, non-forfeiture rights, etc., etc. The main thing here is that you these affect the payout, they affect the payout. So it kind of goes back to my first principles about, you know, analyzing any financial product, right? Which is that, you know, you really do need to understand not only what you're paying, but also the pattern of the payout. And that is vital in any 
thing dealing with finance. Lastly, I guess the the point here is that you know that long-term care insurance, the premiums can increase over time. The carriers have to apply for this right. You know, they cannot just randomly increase the, the premium, but what they can do is that they can go and apply to the state commissioner's office wherever you live or wherever the original policy was written. And they do have the right to increase premiums. And again, this does change the metric of every cash flow or every financial product, right? Because you're under one presumption that here's what you're going to get. Well, that doesn't change, but all of a sudden the seller gets to change the amount that it costs. Now all of a sudden your metric, your measurement, your analysis of what you are going to get for what you are paying changes. This for me makes long-term care insurance, you know, difficult to get a handle on. Nevertheless, even after all of that, the fact is that the payout angle, the amount of benefit you get, is so enormous that it can be viable for those persons with substantial assets to protect. People ask me, you know, what's the amount? And I usually, and this is just a finger in the air exercise, and it's a personal opinion, right? So I would say, basically, if you have about a million and a half dollars of assets to protect. Now it starts to become worth it. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be suggesting to protect a million and a half dollars as your maximum benefit amount. But then you have a number where the meaningfulness of the benefit can protect a substantial amount of assets. And that is ultimately why long-term care insurance persists and continues to exist today. The second way that people generally try to consider financial products and to cover cost of long-term care is something called hybrid life insurance or otherwise known as life insurance with living benefits. Here, it's different, which is that, you know, again, very crowded and very popular, meaning if there's one seller, there are 20 sellers. Look, the insurance companies are very, very aware of the obvious demographic demand. They know 60 million people are Medicare eligible. Baby boomers, the second largest generation in American history now. How it works is basically you are buying life insurance. You're buying life insurance, except that the benefits, the death benefit can be pulled forward while you're still living. And if the full amount of the benefits, meaning the full amount as defined by the carrier of your benefits, is not used, then the life insurance benefits go back to the beneficiary. Now, this is not exactly long-term care, right? Because there are different ways of functioning. The way to understand it is this is life insurance first, Life insurance first. And so you will not hear me trying to market this as long-term care insurance. It is distinct. The features are the math of money are excellent, meaning that because of the intense competition, and I said, you know, 20 sellers at least, there are lots of variations. 
And for those who know something about the way that insurance policy, life insurance policies work, there's universal life, there's indexed universal life, there's guaranteed universal life. So, you know, these are all possible. And most recently, we have term life insurance with living benefits that now exist. It kind of just gives you a flavor for how intense the competition is. However, you know, you knew that however that was coming, right? You know, extreme caution is required, meaning that the differences across the different policies by these 20 competitors are enormous. For example, universal life does not necessarily mean that the insurance will last forever in every scenario. So what has happened? And that this happens now under universal life, right? Which is that the way it works is your premium is the solved solution to make the numbers fit. Well, you've made some assumptions to get to that solved solution. And let's just call it $200 a month. But that depended on a bunch of different things having to do with financial markets, you know, what interest rate your cash value received, the index and crediting, you know, based on the S&P 500, for example, you know, and every carrier has its own variation, its own variation. So what can happen is that in universal life case, you can actually have your cash value go to zero and then you get the nastiest of surprises which is well your premium used to be two hundred dollars a month and now it's seven hundred dollars a month that can happen so it just goes to go to show you you know the tale of yes i understand that we are trying for the lowest possible premium of course that is you know self-evident nevertheless that is not the sole factor and this needs to be kept in mind the other big area here is that, you know, the benefits, the way that the benefits are paying out, that also may have certain limitations. You know, I've seen other variations. For example, let's just say you had a $100,000 life insurance policy with living benefits. Well, once you trigger the amount, there's a question of how much you can get at any point in time. And then there's a question about maybe the 100 is not any longer your full benefit amount, but I've seen it go down to 90, for example. So now, again, this goes back to what I was saying about long-term care and financial products generally, which is you're trying to very carefully measure and examine not only what you're paying, but also the pattern of what you are getting, the timing, how much. You know, this is very much now. And the reality is all the jargon that I've just thrown out over the last, what, 30 minutes. It's for me to explain to you how the pattern of payout occurs. The carrier is going to follow the contract. It's a question of whether you've understood exactly how that payoff occurs. And now you can understand my implication here, right? The implica obvious implication is, do I think that the average day, everyday person who's not highly experienced in how these contracts work, you know, is in a position to evaluate? I can tell you that even I've seen articles written by persons that are used as references points that they have actually missed the point of these contracts, that their conclusions, you know, and their criticisms actually weren't correctly 
stated, in my view, because, you know, you could have easily accommodated it with a counterpoint. My point here is that it's very complicated. I don't suggest that people do it. That doesn't mean you have to call me, Jay. You know, there are other persons that will say that they can understand and be able to analyze these with you. When you're comparing long-term care insurance with with life insurance and living benefits, there is a fundamental trade-off. Long-term care insurance is difficult to get due to underwriting and the complicated language. Nevertheless, per dollar, per dollar, the amount of what you get is very high. Very high. Okay, so yes, it looks like $300 a month, but the total benefit amount is $250,000 of maximum benefit. In other words, you know, the multiplier effect, if you will. And if you go to the video on YouTube, you'll see I drew a graph, the angle of what you're being paid if you required long-term care, you know, is extremely steep. This is why what ends up happening is that, yeah, the customers go, it's painful to pay, but then they went to, they had Alzheimer's and their, you know, spouse was able to collect the benefit in order to defray the cost. And then they'd go, oh, thank goodness I've had this because of the enormous the enormity of the payout. The flip side here is that, you know, life insurance, the, the sticker price is much lower. And while the sticker price can be lower, the issue is that because of the fact that someone always gets the benefit, whether it be you who requires long-term care, or let's just say, for example, you got hit by a truck while getting the mail and you didn't require long-term care insurance. Well, in that instance, someone gets it, meaning you know the carrier has to pay it. So as a result, the total amount being paid to you or your beneficiary is notably lower under life insurance. So there's your trade-off, really, in essence. And then from there, you know, as I said, you've got these trade-offs, and then it's for you to kind of fit across what your objectives would be and then what your budget will allow. There's a last group of policies, and let's just call them annuities with lifetime benefit riders. Okay, so you can go to... YouTube uh, and or another podcast, right? I described annuities uh, in the past. So under annuities, what can happen is the real value of the annuities is the tax shield once you put deposit the money. But in addition to that, if you have the guaranteed lifetime income, you know, possibility and you then, you know, the bottom line here is that one of the mistakes that people make is that if they have that feature, that people don't use it because the money that you get, you know, can be very good compared to just simply liquidating. So that's your go back to the video or to the podcast to try to get that. But let's just fast forward and presume that you've hit the button. That's what I call it for my clients. You've hit the income button and you start receiving the guaranteed income. 
new policies are out here to accommodate. So if you are confined to a skilled nursing facility, first of all, you can pull out big monies. Uh, if you've not hit the rider or if you've not started to receive the lifetime income, there are exceptions in certain in certain types of annuities where the excess withdrawal penalties can be waived or can be lower. This may be an important feature. This is not the main point or my basis of this com- this conversation here. My point here is that new annuities exist where let's say you've hit the lifetime income feature and now you're getting X dollars a month or X dollars a year. If you require long-term care because you're going into a skilled nursing facility, for example, you can't perform two ADLs, which are activities of daily living, it can be instead of X dollars a year, a higher Y dollars a year. Okay, and, and I'm not going to tell you that in certain cases it's not very large. In other cases, I've seen as much as double so that my Y is two times X for five years. I've seen this. And I would expect these kinds of twists to continue to exist in the market. It Notably here under, notably here under annuities, There's no medical underwriting. Let me repeat that. There's no medical underwriting. So as I said, one of the the hardest hurdle under long-term care insurance is the fact that these are underwritten. And it is true also for life insurance, although to a lesser degree. Well, for some people who will never pass medical underwriting, this path does exist. The pros, the cons here should be fairly clear, which is number one, as all annuities, this does that you get the lifetime income rider and you actually activate it or annuitize. This moves your lifelong longevity risk to another party. You get this X dollars for as long as you live. Okay. The cons of it is that you know, a large deposit is required at the beginning. And here's your issue, which is that when you're thinking about whether you can afford it, whether or not the deposit is worth it, what I always do is I always look to what the result is first. In other words, is X, in my example, is that a meaningful number? Is that a meaningful number such that it can be added something to your life. If it kicks off, if X is $50 a month, you know, you got to wonder whether or not the exercise is worth it at all. However, at bigger numbers, $1,000 a month. Okay, that's different because if X can be $2,000 a month and if you required long-term care, then the numbers start to be interesting because its function of those dollars can be meaningful. That's kind of the exercise when you're considering all of these different options. Now, when does this sound complicated? I'm not going to kid you. This is, right? You can see it. I, you know, I've been talking, what, 30 minutes at breakneck pace. And for newcomers to the topic, you probably have to listen to it a few times uh, because these distinctions are notable, but it can be very worth the exercise because, like I said, the downside to your 
household net worth is so large in these instances, and there's no other hedge here. And the idea that financial markets would be your hedge, again, like I said, that may be true, but it's not very, very unlikely because the payout, in other words, the growth of your portfolio is not of the same shape and size as the losses to your household net worth if you required long-term care. That is the reason that this topic even exists. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up here because otherwise, you know, literally, could this could this podcast have been double this length? The answer to that is yes, right? We could have teased into every last you know, piece of jargon, et cetera, et cetera, that exists out there and things like that. It's beyond the scope and scale here. If you have your private questions, email sits there in this podcast, in the text of the podcast. You can send me your private questions. And of course, your information would be kept confidential. I'm not, you know, I don't even, I don't even mention this fact because it should be obvious because I have certain, you know, rules about professionalism, for example, that, you know, disallow me from like sharing your name and your location, et cetera, without your permission. That's a no fly zone for me. You can certainly send me your private question and the first answers will be free. We can take the conversation from there. Please continue to listen, download, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you enjoy your podcast. I'm Jay. This has been the Maximize Your Medicare podcast, and now you can understand why I use the hashtag much more than Medicare. Talk to you the next time.